Well, this has been a busy week. Yesterday was a busy day. Hopefully, all of you are aware and spent time yesterday remembering what happened 20 years ago in New York City at the Pentagon and in a field in Pennsylvania. As I went through yesterday, I couldn't get that off of my mind, largely because everywhere we went, people were talking about it. It's appropriate that we should be, that we should remember these things, and we should hold the sacredness, the somberness dear to our hearts. But along with commemoration comes the work of doing it, and so yesterday as the uh, the Legion had their uh, memorial celebration over there. I don't know if celebration is the right word, but it's what it was. They, they had pigs, so it was, it was good. They asked me to, to uh, pray it a couple of times during their service there, and, and I was excited to be able to take part in that. But it was also the same day as the baby shower. There's a lot of getting ready for that, and... and uh, <laughs> uh, Megan and Brian had their I Do barbecue, their reception for those who weren't in Florida for their wedding, because who can go to Florida for the wedding? But anyway, in between, there was a lot of running around and trying to get ready for Sunday and so on. And we, we got to, to uh, the Caridi I Do barbecue for about two minutes, Shelly and I did, when I got a call from my mom that cows were out at the farm. And uh, while my mother is sitting here calmly this morning, she was not calm in that moment and was quite out of breath and panicked. And so we got, went back there and, uh, you know, she had it well in hand. She didn't need me at all. And uh, anyway, as I, was, as I led the, the cattle back out to the pasture, they were so peaceful and calm. Like, you know, they were, they knew they were good. They didn't do anything wrong. Everything's happy. Like they didn't even want to be out. I got them out there, and uh, in the meantime, when they came out, the horses and llama broke out of their pen because the cattle had messed up their, their fence. And so my wife, who was with me and had come directly from the Caridi I Do Barbecue, I have to keep saying that every once in a while, uh, <laughs> had to help get the horses and llama back in. Only, as she told me as she was driving out uh, with, the, with the little Kubota to meet me, this is that I am not wearing proper footwear to be running around out here in the field. Guess what, honey? You just made the sermon. Proper footwear matters a ton. And, and maybe we don't think of it often enough when it comes to the armor of God. And I, I confess, I don't, I don't think I have. In fact, I think I almost missed a big part of what the Lord has for us in this very short passage. It's one verse, one part of a sentence. And yet, as Paul is unpacking what it means to be suited up for the battle, uh, he specifies taking care of your feet. Maybe, maybe uh, some of you have seen a movie that came out back in the 90s, uh, Forrest Gump, anybody heard of it? 
And when he arrives in country in Vietnam and he meets Lieutenant Dan, the first thing that Lieutenant Dan says to him, I'll leave the expletives out, but the, the second thing that he says to him is that there's one piece of equipment that stands between the soldier and death, socks. And he goes on to tell him how important it is to keep your feet dry. Soldiers in World War I dealt with what they called trench foot for the same reason as those serving in Vietnam dealt with jungle rot. That wetness caused fungus that would just eat your flesh away. And you can't function effectively if you can't stand. This is exactly what Paul is saying as he calls us to stand. As we read from uh, verses 10 to 20 of chapter 6 earlier, let's focus in on verses 14 and 15. Actually, let's, focus, let's back up to 13 just for the fun of it, where he starts to talk about this full armor. In light of this battle that we're in, that we need to take our stand against the devil's schemes, not against temporal, earthly enemies. So let's not be confused. Paul doesn't want us to be confused in thinking that our enemy is that person that disagrees with us or who mistreated us or cut us off in, in the drive through or any of those things. It's not the person from, from that other nation that we might look at as somehow less than us. It's not the terrorist that, that took out the Twin Towers. That's not the enemy, not the real enemy. Our struggle is bigger. It's not less, it's more. It's the dark forces of evil behind those things. The enemy is in us and around us and beyond us. It's not against flesh and blood. It's against spiritual forces. So he says in verse 13, <clears throat> excuse me, therefore, Put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, not if, when the day of evil comes, you may remember just shortly before this in chapter 4, he reminded us that we should be making the most of every opportunity now, redeeming the time, as the King James would say, now, because the days are evil. We're in the evil days. It's not talking about some eschatological event. He's not talking about when the Antichrist shows up in the temple. He's not talking about any of that. He's talking about when you face it now. When the darkness seeks to overwhelm you now. When you recognize, as Luther wrote, that our enemy's craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate. When you feel that, when you sense it, when the presence of darkness is tangible, you have to stand now when the day of evil comes. Therefore put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you've done everything, to stand. Stand firm then, with the belt of truth buckled around your <clears throat> excuse me buckled around your waist 
with the breastplate of righteousness in place. And with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. He goes on to say, in addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, which we'll talk about next week, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. He says, further, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And then he exhorts us to be alert and to pray. Our core reality today is this. The reality of new life in Christ makes us ready to carry out our mission. The reality of new life in Christ makes us ready to carry out our mission. As the passage unfolds, hopefully you will see this clearly. Let me clarify a few things as we go. The reality is a focus for us. As you read through the book of Acts, what you see is not a bunch of people creating a new religious movement. There are lots and lots of religious movements. And there are sincere believers in a variety of religious movements. But what has changed those cowering disciples into powerful witnesses is the real presence of the Holy Spirit of God in them. God personally in you as a believer. And when they came to realize that it wasn't a matter of trying to believe a set of beliefs, but of recognizing that Jesus Christ is the reality. He is who He says He is. The reality of God manifest in front of their very eyes and in their very lives, nothing could shake them after that. So they faced every kind of hardship you can imagine. Paul details those in his own life as he lays them out. And we see at the end of the book of Acts just this wave after wave of difficulty that Paul faces. And not one thing can cause him to waver. When Paul in Romans chapter 8 says, we are more than conquerors, it's not because any of them rode the wave of prosperity and easy living that did not happen. Just the opposite. There was something to conquer. Why are they more than conquerors? Because of the reality, the very real presence of God. And they came to recognize that the scene is passing. But the unseen things are the greater reality. They're eternal. It's the reality of new life that we're looking at. <clears throat> the reality of new life in Christ. Throughout this letter, and the, the very point of this letter for Paul, as he's writing to the church at Ephesus, is to let them know exactly what it means to be in Christ. He's writing to those who are presumably in Christ. That's, that's his presumption, is that as he's writing to the church, to the saints, that those who are hearing and reading his words 
are in Christ. They've been united to Christ by faith. He recognizes, as we should also, that not everyone who is present has done that. But he's writing to those who have, those who are in Christ, and have received new life. Having a religion is not new life. That is a shift in your mental ascent. And there's value in such things. If I change from one way of thinking to another way of thinking, it absolutely impacts my behavior. But this is different. This is dying and being reborn. A new life, a new creation in Christ. It's the reality of new life in Christ that makes us ready, gives us everything that we need, provides for our protection so that we can carry out our mission. We need to understand, as they needed to understand, that there is a mission. It's not a matter of just coming to Christ and now we sit around and eat bonbons and and drink oolong tea and and feel really happy about ourselves. I was looking for a way to say oolong. That was just the whole reason for that, just so you know. A little meta-communication for you. Too often we as Christians become those who are comfortable. And we sit in padded, comfortable chairs in an air-conditioned building, in a free society where we can worship without harsh persecution, without the fear that jackbooted thugs are going to come in and haul us off and take us to prison or a gulag. We don't have to fear those things right now. Many do. We are far too often too comfortable because we forget that there is a mission and we are in a battle. It is the reality of new life in Christ that makes us ready to carry out our mission. Well, let's get down to what he says. Backing up to verse 14, he says, Stand firm then. Stand firm then. We looked at the belt of truth buckled around our waist. We took a a week to take a look at the, the breastplate of righteousness, what that means in guarding our hearts with the righteousness we receive from Christ. Today, in verse 15, we stand firm with the feet with our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So what does he mean with this stand firm? First, mark this down, standing firm against strong opposition requires traction. Standing firm against strong opposition requires traction. If we're going to hold our own, if we're going to be able to stand our ground in this battle, we have to recognize that there is a need for spiritual traction. Now, dancers and athletes know how important it is to wear the right thing on your feet, right? Ballet and tap require dramatically different kinds of shoes, right? And even, even the best dancer, the greatest dancers in the world, would not be able to perform effectively if those shoes would rever- would, were reversed. 
Imagine Barishnikov trying to do, do uh, ballet and tap shoes. Some of you are looking at me like, who's Barishnikov? We've we got to pick up here. Imagine Fred Astaire going to do a great tap routine wearing ballet point shoes. It's not going to work. It doesn't matter how good you are. It's just not going to work because it's the wrong equipment. You don't run a marathon in flip-flops. You're not going to make it. Unless you're Nigerian and you run barefoot. That's another story. Basketball players need shoes with soles that grip smooth surfaces, while football players need shoes with cleats that dig into the turf and allow them to push. Reverse them, it's not going to work well. Cleats on a basketball court, bad news. Basketball shoes on a football field, you're going to get pushed around. The right footwear matters. Just like my wife didn't have the proper footwear to chase cattle in her dressy sandals, the same thing applies for us. We need what Alistair Begg calls gospel shoes. These gospel shoes, if you will, allow us to dig in, to gain traction when the world, the flesh, and the devil are conspiring to push us around. The reality of the power of Jesus Christ equips us to stand our ground against the devil's schemes. Let me, let me read that sentence for you again. The reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ equips us to stand our ground against the devil's schemes. Standing firm against strong opposition requires traction. Secondly, notice that standing firm does not mean standing, standing still. Standing firm does not mean standing still. There's more to combat than hunkering down, waiting to fend off enemy attacks. Now, while people may debate the old adage that the best defense is a good offense, it's still invariably true that both aspects are needed. Whether in warfare, in sports, or virtually any other endeavor, including our spiritual battles. Standing firm does not mean standing still. God has called us to stand, but not merely to stand. We have a mission, and that mission inherently involves going. In our Great Commission in Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, go and make disciples. He doesn't say, sit on the sofa and wait for the disciples to show up. As you're going about your business implies movement. As you're doing what you're doing, be on the offensive looking for opportunities to bring light into a dark world. To bring those who don't know Christ and are living and dying in their sins, separated from God, to a saving knowledge of Christ. These, these gospel shoes matter. The reality of the gospel equips us to stand our ground, but not just to stand our ground. Our mission, as I mentioned, inherently involves going. Understand that no matter what we're talking about, you can't win if you don't score. You can have the greatest defense in the world. As a Bears fan, I understand the importance of this. You got to have an offense. At some point, you got to put the ball in the end zone. 
You can have the greatest glove in the world, but at some point you've got to get a run across the plate or you can't win. This is true in our mission as Christ followers. If we just isolate, we're just going to stay in, in here, in these four walls where we're comfortable. We don't take chances. We can't lose, right? We can't win either. We have to move to carry out our mission. Standing still is simply not an option the Lord gives us. Standing firm against strong opposition requires traction. Standing firm does not mean standing still. If we're going to stand firm, let's get to the point of these gospel shoes, or as the title of the sermon says, gospel readiness. We're to stand firm then with our feet fitted. With our feet fitted. What does that mean? Outfitted. Getting the shoes. Getting the boots. We need to be, if you will, shod. I really wanted to put that in the outline somewhere. I couldn't make it fit. But we need to be shod with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. So we stand firm then with our feet fitted. Here Paul is again being uh, very particular about the armor. What is required to stand against the devil's schemes is not a general concept of armor, but some specifics. We don't often tend to think about the significant role that footwear played in the expansion of the Roman Empire. Apart from advances in footwear, the Roman Empire could not have happened. Now, in all likelihood, you've probably never thought that before. We needed the roads that they established to, to carry out the peace, the peace of Rome throughout the empire. They needed the means of war. Rome was great at borrowing things. And they borrowed footwear concepts from the Greeks and specifically from Hannibal and the Carthaginians. As they adapted and took on this footwear they were less concerned with style. The Greeks were into elegance and beauty, and so their, their footwear, even in battle, was made to look good, to be elegant. It was part of their beliefs. Rome was much more practical. They were utilitarian. We wanted to work. We wanted to win. And so they adapted what they called the caligae. The caligae were the the military sandals that they developed. Now, the footwear mattered because as the empire expanded, they were traveling to ever more distant and remote lands, which meant that the armies had to march great distances. That's hard to do barefoot. They needed protection. They needed traction. They needed to be able to march without having their feet give up and betray them. Better shoes protected their feet as they traveled, gave them traction in battle. And the development of these caligae allowed the Roman armies to travel far and maintain an advantage over those they would conquer, who, very frankly, were less well shod. Now, you get, if you happen to see a documentary at some point on the footwear of the Roman military, 
text me, you get bonus points because that's great. People don't spend a lot of time talking about it. But it's crucial. Mark this down. Proper footwear allows us to resist the enemy without slipping. Proper footwear allows us to resist the enemy without slipping. We need spiritual traction. Have you ever felt, <coughs> excuse me, have you ever felt like you were slipping? I'm struggling in my faith right now. <coughs> I feel like I'm slipping into the darkness right now. I feel like I'm choking to death. <coughs> Preacher's got to get better at drinking water. <coughs> if we get a comment on the YouTube video that says the pastor has a drinking problem, I will laugh out loud. <coughs> I feel better now. All right. Proper footwear allows us to resist the enemy without slipping. And if you have struggled in your faith, you know what it feels like to be slipping as the enemy overcomes you and you feel like the darkness is bigger than you can handle and you need to be able to get a foothold. Spiritually, that's huge. Now, as Paul's using this Roman armor, he doesn't specify Roman armor. He's probably not himself wanting them actively to think about Rome, but he knows that this is what people know. They recognize this. They're familiar with it. And so as they're thinking about these things, they're thinking about what the soldiers around them would wear. What, what the people that they were familiar with would wear. Understand that the addition of hobnails to the soles of the shoes functioned for Rome essentially as cleats. They had these thick-soled caligae, these thick-soled military sandals, and they added these hobnails, these, these glorified tacks, that would provide for them a cleat effect so that they could get better traction in pitched battle, especially in rough terrain, where they couldn't get a good footing and these hobnailed sandals allowed them to dig in. This is a really important thing for us to recognize. When we allow the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done for us to be, as it were, our spiritual cleats, then we can be steadfast, immovable, when the enemy comes against us, we don't get pushed back because our gospel shoes have given us spiritual traction. Next notice this. Proper footwear provides protection in our progress. The alliteration was not intentional, but I kept it anyway. Proper footwear provides protection in our progress. It's, it's important for us to recognize that as these soldiers wore these sandals, it wasn't just so that they could stand. The battle involved more. Being an effective army involved more. They needed to advance. They needed to be able to march and fight. 
They needed to be able to be both stable and mobile, active, going. They needed to be able to advance. In the same way, having the right spiritual footwear, having our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace, allows us to go forward, to advance the gospel. In other words, when we know who we are in Christ, and we know what it means to have been dead in our sin, and have God, by His grace, reach down and pull us up out of the sewer we chose, to pull us up out of the death that was our nature even before we chose. We were dead in our sin. And God reached in and He snatched us out and said, this one's mine. When we see that as reality, we have no more room in our lives for feeling superior to anyone. We have no more room in our lives for the devil to come after us with the accusations that you're not performing well enough. Because the reality of the gospel is not about your performance. You are not saved by how well you live the Christian life. You're saved by God's unmerited favor. His unearned blessing. We use one very common word for that. It's an amazing word. It's grace. We're saved by His grace, not by our doing or our gripping and holding on to God, not by our choosing Him, but by His choosing us, which is the only reason we're able to choose Him as He has changed our hearts. Turn, if you would, back a couple of chapters to Ephesians 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to try again to drink this water without killing myself in front of you. So, Swallow first, then breathe. I'm getting better. I've got to write that down. Ephesians chapter 1. Starting with verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. I didn't choose to be an apostle. God made me this. To God's holy people in Ephesus. It doesn't say God's perfect people. It doesn't say God's sinless people. It also is not addressed to sinners, but to the saints in Ephesus, the holy people, those who have been set apart, not by their special life, but by the grace of God. And he clarifies that by calling them the faithful in Christ Jesus. And he greets them with this standard but wonderful greeting. Why is it standard? Because it's so wonderful. This is why he thinks the way he thinks. So as he greets them, he says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 2 in Ephesians, like so many of the greetings in the letters, we tend to overlook. But as he writes this to the people who are in Christ, in Ephesus, he 
bestows upon them or, or wishes for them, if I can use that phrasing, grace from God and peace, harmony and reconciliation, shalom from God. God who is our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how he starts before we even get into the body of the letter. And then he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Don't miss out on the importance of the greeting. This is for those who are in Christ already. If you're not in Christ, then the blessings that God has given to those who are in Christ do not apply to you. Oh no, what am I going to do? Take hold of Christ. It's real simple. If you are not in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, you get to decide that right now. If you are hearing me and that's what you want with your life, it's because God is speaking to your heart by His Spirit. He's tugging at you. And if you choose Him, He will never turn you away. Because that choosing comes from Him. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and will to be the praise, uh, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure which He purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. When we take hold of this message of the gospel, we're going to wonder why we didn't see it before. A dear friend said to me recently, you know, if you got heaven... And hell standing before you as a choice. Who in their right mind would choose hell? My answer is almost everybody. Because we don't see that as the choice. The devil works to deceive, distract, and discourage us. And so he puts our mind on it differently. So it's not a choice between heaven and hell. It's a choice between my way and God's way guess which wins. But when I choose my way, I am choosing hell. When I choose God's way, I'm choosing heaven. But in chapter 2, he goes into more detail about that. Turn the page if you have to, or look on the same page to chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you saints in Ephesus... You holy people set apart for Christ who are in Christ and blessed 
in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ, who are chosen and adopted and predestined, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us, notice he includes himself, all of us, every single one of us, no exceptions, also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, don't, don't misunderstand. Mercy is specifically saying, if you're offended by this, I would really like to apologize, but I can't. Mercy is specifically saying you are a dirtbag and you belong to the devil. But God has another plan for you. In his love, because he is rich in mercy, in other words, holding back from you the wrath that you deserve. Every breath you and I take before we are in Christ is mercy. And every breath we take after is grace. He allows us to live because every moment that we are alive, every thought we are able to think is one more moment, one more thought when we have the opportunity to turn to Him. This is the first part of the gospel that we have to get. We are dead. And if you think that your wisdom chose God, Go over to the funeral home sometime and see how much choosing that person in the box does. Dead people don't choose. Dead people don't reach. Dead people don't strive. Dead people don't live. But God, who's rich in mercy, because of His great love for us, took out our stone-dead heart and put in a heart of flesh so that we could receive Him so that we could connect to Him. Verse 4, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kind to, kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Proper footwear allows us to resist the enemy without slipping, and it also provides protection in our progress. When we grasp the reality of what new life in Christ means, where it comes from, how we get hold of it, what it means to our understanding of reality. All of this here is passing. If you are in Christ, the best day you ever live on this earth is the worst day you will ever have. 
Because once you leave this planet, it's all good in the presence of the king who is by his choice your daddy. But if you're not in Christ, then the very worst thing you ever experience here you can fill the blanks in with your imagination. The worst day of your life, the 9-11 of your existence, is the best day you will ever experience. Because the separation and condemnation that comes when you leave this planet without Christ is beyond any imagining. When this reality takes hold of us and we truly understand that, that that's what we deserve and that was our destiny until the creator of the universe said, you, come with me. When we get that, everything changes. The reason we fight the battle changes. Some of you are veterans and you know you understand the difference between fighting when you know what you're fighting for and fighting because that's what I'm supposed to do. I'm following orders, but I don't get it. Both, both are a fight, but it sure is a whole different mentality when I know why I'm here. It's the reality of new life in Christ that makes us ready to carry out our mission it protects us from the enemy's attacks. But it also provides protection as we advance. It allows us to stand and resist, but it protects us as we progress in carrying out the mission. Stand firm then with your feet fitted with the readiness. What is this readiness about? Notice this, we must be ready to stand our ground in defense of the faith. We must be ready to stand our ground in defense of the faith. We must defend the faith once for all entrusted to the saints against the slanderous lies of the enemy. Not only in the world, we often will fixate on that. As if we are trying to create a godly society here on earth. And that was once the teaching of, of many and still is the teaching of some this idea that we are building God's kingdom. We're ushering in the kingdom of God now. Therefore, we can create a just and righteous society as we deal with poverty, as we educate the masses. And more educated and wealthier people will do good things. World War I kind of shattered that image for many. The 20th century which was supposed to be the time when we had war behind us. We were civilized. We were enlightened. We were able to choose good. We had the technology to be able to deal with all of the discrepancies that separated us. And all it did, to borrow from C.S. Lewis, was create more clever devils. Because we... All, apart from Christ, 
are owned. We are slaves to sin. It's the reality of new life in Christ that yanks us out of that and makes us new. We must be ready to stand our ground in defense of the faith, but that is not a temporal thing. Yes, we stand against accusations against the church. But marching and picketing and petitioning and trying to get new laws made isn't going to change that. You know what's going to change the perception of the church of Jesus Christ? The same thing it did in the first century. And every century since. When we reflect the reality of Christ through relationships. What drew this outlawed cult into the open and made it the most prominent religion in the most powerful empire in the world, in, in Rome. To the point where it eventually became the official religion, which immediately led to corruption, but that's another, another message for another time. What made the difference? It didn't start with prominent, influential people. It started with uneducated plain, blue-collar folks, young men, some wealthy women, but none who were holding the strings of power. What made an impact was living out the reality of new life in Christ. Turn to Acts chapter 2. If you're less familiar with your Bible, you're going back to the left a little bit. If you get to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you want a little bit too far. Right after the book of John, you find the book of Acts, which is sort of a continuation of the Gospels. It's a continuation of the story of Christ on earth. But Christ has now ascended. He's gone back to heaven and He has left uh, for us or sent for us in chapter 2 the Holy Spirit of God to take His place in indwelling believers. When you find chapter 2, there's a great story of the beginning of the church as the Holy Spirit comes down on the celebration of Pentecost. That's not what we're reading. Jump ahead to verse 42. This is what happens when those who claim Christ are filled with the Spirit of Christ and live like Christ in the world. 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. This means that they were committed to learning the doctrines of the faith. They wanted to know what the apostles were teaching and they devoted themselves to it. They put time and effort into knowing the truth. How can I know Jesus better? And they devoted themselves to fellowship, to building their connectedness to one another. To getting deeper in their relationships. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This is a reference to the fellowship through the act of what was commonly called communion or the Lord's Supper. As they celebrated what Christ did in His death on the cross, 
to purchase us. It bound them together and they committed themselves to it. These things are the priorities of their lives. Bigger, bigger than their own pleasures. Bigger than their employments. Bigger than pursuing some human relationship. The priorities of their lives are seen in these devotions. And lastly, they're devoted to prayer. We'll get to that in a few weeks, but that's what Paul is saying in this armor. Man, don't neglect prayer. Armor up. Suit up. But prayer is central to this. Luke continues as he's writing this this, uh, account in verse 43. Everyone, speaking of the church and those around, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers, now it's not talking about those outside, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They were physically together, but that's not physically living in a commune, means that they were in one accord. They were of one mind. They were united. They were together on the same page, living in the reality of new life in Christ. And they, therefore, they had everything in common. They shared what they had with one another. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Notice the result Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. They were enjoying the favor of all the people who may have opposed their religion, but they couldn't deny the reality of what they saw in their lives. Therefore, at the end of verse 47 we read, And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This is how we can stand in defense of the faith by living the reality of the gospel. We must defend it against the slanderous lies of the enemy, not only in the world though, but in ourselves. He attacks our minds and hearts in order to deceive, distract, and discourage us. And we must constantly regularly preach the gospel to ourselves we need to remember who we are in christ how we came to be so that we were dead and now we're alive through no doing of our own but by the grace of god demonstrated to us as romans 5 8 says in that while we were still sinners christ died for us every single one of us falls short of the glory of god and yet Christ is given so that every single one of us can receive His grace, can be redeemed by the person and work of Christ. This readiness means that we must be ready to stand our ground in defense of the faith. But secondly, we must be ready to run to the battle. There are lives at stake. We must be ready to run to the battle. There are lives at stake. There is more than just standing We have to defend, and we also have to advance. Our call in Matthew 28 is to make disciples 
Baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That means bringing them in. Identifying them with Christ. Helping them to see the reality of new life and to make it their own. To become part of the body of Christ. And, along with that, to teach them everything that Christ taught us. Teaching them to obey the commands of the Lord. We have to be ready to run to the battle because if we do not, those who are dead and apart from Christ, as we once were, will remain so. How will they know if we don't tell them? Turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 10. If you're still in Acts, go just to the right one book. Look, if you would, uh, at 10, 5, and following. Paul has just spoken about Christ being the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. He continues in verse 5, Moses writes this about the righteousness that is by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. In other words, the person who perfectly keeps the law will live by them. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. It's not out there in the distance. It's not, you don't have to climb uh, steps up the cathedral steps on your knees. You don't have to go up to the mountains of Tibet. You don't have to do any of these things. It's not out there to go and search after God. Rather, God has been coming for you. He's near to you. The message is here. Christ is Emmanuel, God with us. The gospel is right here in your hands. What is this message concerning faith that we proclaim? Verse 9, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. No hoops to jump through. Not if you do this and you do these other things and you never mess up again and you blah, blah, blah. No. Confess and believe. Verse 10, for it's with your heart that you believe and are justified. And it's with your mouth that you profess <clears throat> that you profess your faith and are saved. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in Him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. There's no maybe. If you want him, you got him on his terms. How then, and this is where we start coming to our point, in light of this this gospel that is by 
grace through faith. This justification that we receive by believing. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not, of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they're sent? Somebody's got to take the message. The gospel has to advance. As the church of Jesus Christ, as a household within that family, we must be gospel-advancing people. We must run to the battle. Lives are at stake. And someone has to support those who are able to do it elsewhere. We have to send others out so that the gospel can go to the ends of the earth. As it is written, here he quotes Isaiah 52, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. We are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace makes us ready to run to the battle so that others can live. Stand firm then with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. The gospel of peace is the resounding theme of this letter. This is Paul's declaration. It's his point. He declares God's great purpose in bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Christ. So we see this in Christ, in Christ, in Christ over and over again. We see the idea of peace, of harmony, of unity, of reconciliation over and over and over again. God is bringing all things together as he created them under His rule in Christ. And that, that work will continue until the final consummation. And when that consummation happens and the wicked are judged and sin is eliminated and the new heavens and new earth are established, then the perfection, which is our destiny, will occur. In the meantime, we need to recognize that this good message of peace with God in Christ is the heart of everything. Mark this down. The person and work of Jesus Christ is our peace. The person and work of Jesus Christ is our peace. Amen, somebody. This readiness that we have comes from the reality of new life in Christ. It comes from the gospel of peace which is Jesus Christ. That's the focus of everything. Paul is writing the letter to the Colossian church about the same time he's writing this letter to the, to the Ephesian church. And as he says to the, to the Colossian church, Christ is supreme. He is before all things, and everything holds together in Him. He is the point of all of history. Everything that has ever been and, and ever will be is found in Him, pointing to Him, held together by Him for His glory. Everything that's ever happened to you in your life, good, bad, or indifferent, 
God has allowed into your life to first bring you to Christ, to bring you to the foot of the cross, so that you can make a decision that He enables you to make. Then, to make you more like Christ. All the bad stuff that happened to you are to drive you to your knees to come to Christ for salvation. Well, you're like, man, I'm already saved. Why do I keep having bad stuff happen? Because you have the privilege, and I have the privilege of suffering as Christ suffered so that we can become more like Him. And in the end, the perfection of being perfectly conformed to the likeness of Christ is the destiny of every believer. But we don't grow apart from pain. Suffering is necessary. I don't like it any more than you do, but it's our reality. The personal work of Jesus Christ is our peace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of peace with God. Peace with God. This is our salvation. Peace with God is our salvation. It's by grace you've been saved. You were darkness. Now you are light in the Lord. You were dead. He brought you to life. He himself is our peace. Peace with God is our salvation the gospel of Jesus Christ is also the good news of the peace of God. Peace with God, which then being in Christ, united with Him, gives us the peace of God. This has to do with His sovereignty. Now understand, the peace with God comes immediately because it's not based on anything I do. I do. It's based on the work of Christ alone. So the moment that I put my hope in His work... I receive harmony and peace with God. The peace of God comes incrementally as I grow in my understanding of God's sovereignty. Now, throughout the book of Ephesians, especially in the first three chapters, we see the picture that God is the doer of the things that matter. He is the one who is bringing all things together under his kingdom rule in Christ. Everything that the devil does to try to shipwreck your faith, God is using to shape your faith. What the devil intends as a weapon, God has already ordained as a tool. He is bringing us to the fullness of understanding who we are and who he is. And when we grasp that, the more we understand the promises of God, the character of God, where we stand with Him, the less we worry, the less we fear. But it doesn't come all at once. It's not designed to. It's a function of our growth. It's a function of what we do as we fill our minds with the truth of God's Word as we suit up with the armor that He gives us, as we encircle ourselves with the belt of His truth, and we guard our hearts with the righteousness that we have received from Christ, not achieved on our own, and as we set our feet in those gospel shoes, 
so that we can defend the faith and advance the gospel. We're ready for battle. And the more we train and the more experience we gain, the less overwhelming this darkness becomes. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of peace with God and our salvation, of, of the peace of God as we recognize His sovereignty. Lastly, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of peace in God. This is our solidarity. We have peace with one another in God. Because we are in Christ, we have been set right with God. And because we are in Christ, all of us who are believers have been united with Him. This is why Paul continually says over and over and over, you are one, you are one. There's no longer Jew or Gentile, male or female. There is no more earthly division. All of these human identities that you cling to, toss them out the window. It doesn't apply because you're one. This is our solidarity as the church. We are one body. Many members serving different functions, different abilities, we look different. We sound different. We even smell different. But we are one. It's the peace that we have in God because of the peace that we have with God that gives us our solidarity together as Christ followers. Romans 1.16 is our memory verse for today. Paul, as he lays out the human condition in the book of Romans, as sort of a bridge thought from his initial opening greetings into this really kind of depressing picture that we see of all of us people who suppress the truth by our wickedness and what happens when we go our way instead of God's way and our minds are darkened and he gives us over to the choices that we make in the bridge between there, Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. When he's talking about this gospel of peace, we need to understand it is always, always has been, always will be counterculture. Always. And when we have a, a, a really nice Dick Van Dyke style 1950s kind of culture, early 60s, and everything's really happy and smiley and black and white, right? We're still counterculture. Because all of that is human goodness, human enlightenment, human-centered. And in the end, it's just a really well-dressed, made-up corpse. In Christ we have life. Paul is not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, then to the Gentile. What changed Paul is the same thing that changes all of us when we come to grips with the reality of the gospel. When I recognize what is real over against what merely seems real. Then the embarrassment 
Yeah, I said it. That comes when we stand up and the world says, you really believe that stuff? You, you really believe in a literal creation? You uneducated rube. You really believe that those outdated sexual mores apply? That God cares? That God cares who I couple with? What kind of a prude are you? But when I recognize that the gospel is the power of God to save everyone who believes, and I recognize, as Noah did, that everyone who does not believe is destined to perish, then I no longer have room to be ashamed and embarrassed. And I no longer have room to judge them because I was one of them. And somebody told me the truth. Regardless of how I might have responded to it, regardless of how I might have said, you know what, I think this relationship is over. They cared more about me than they did about my reaction. And they shared that truth. For me, it was my own parents. For you, it might be a softball coach or a teacher or the neighbor lady next door or your spouse. But somebody had the guts to say, I don't care how anybody else feels about this. Truth is true. And I don't want to see you die eternally. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. If we are going to be able to stand our ground against the devil's schemes, we need to recognize that the reality of new life in Christ makes us ready to carry out our mission, and that we need to do it. Let's pray. Father, teach us. Teach us how to fight our battles in you. Teach us to find our strength in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Enable us to see, to grasp, to embrace, to adore the truth of the gospel to recognize it not as a set of religious principles that we are to believe in, but it is the reality that we must embrace to be able to move from believing in You to believing You. Make us ready when the devil brings darkness when he attacks, when we find ourselves in, in pitched battle, Lord, give us spiritual traction as we cling to the reality of who Jesus is and who we are in him. 
Father, in a world that is dying, is indeed already dead. Make us ready to advance the gospel. To make war in the heavenlies against that darkness with the love of Jesus Christ so that others may know and turn and live. Embolden us, Lord, to never be ashamed of your gospel. Oh, we know that it comes to us. We often feel those pangs as the devil seeks to deceive and distract and discourage us. But help us to know that no matter how surrounded we might feel, we remain always surrounded by the reality of You. Thank You, Father, for Jesus, for this good news of real life in Christ. Thank you for fighting our battles for us. We pray this in the name of the one who gave himself for us, dying on a cross for our sin, that we might be raised to a new life in him by the power of your spirit, your son Jesus. Amen.